On today's episode, we travel back in time to one of the greatest moments in F1 history. Stick around as you turn into the Apex F1 Podcast. and welcome to the Apex F1 podcast. My name is Ryan. I'm here with my co-host Josh. How you doing, Josh? Doing all right, guys. A little under the weather this time, but still here kicking it. That's good. Well, today we've got an action-packed episode for you. Definitely going to be at the edge of my seat for this one, uh, but we have another special guest returning bring them in here in just a moment. But I did want to take a moment to talk about our Discord and Patreon. Uh, We are currently working on the Discord community for our podcast. So uh, be checking our socials at the Apex F1 podcast official or the Apex F1 official on Instagram. The Patreon, where you can directly support us, not only as creators, also as individuals as well. This is going to be the biggest spot to support us. Um, And it will also give you access to more in-depth coverage on what we do in our podcast, such as um, live Q&As, one-on-one sessions with us, special guest interactions too. So there's going to be a lot to come in the next couple of weeks as we get all these things squared away and set up. So please keep an eye out for that. Let's go ahead and get started into the episode. Let's bring in our guest, Willem. Welcome back, Willem. Welcome to the show again. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, good to have you back. So this episode is a little different. Off mic, we've discussed with Willem uh, what he would like to talk about as part of our F1 flashback series. What have you got for us this time? I really wanted to kick things off talking about how F1 has become the sport it is by looking at like individual moments or, or seasons. And with the 2007 Formula One World Championship, which I can assure you, is one of the most interesting seasons you will ever experience. And it comes at a very interesting time. Thank you, Willem. That is a great topic. But what he doesn't know is that we actually have a time machine. It's actually in the form. Well, hold on one second. Let me go get it. Wait. Let me see if it's what okay. Are you gonna, what are you hold doing? on, hold on. Yeah, we got a surprise. This is going to be a good one for you. Trust me. Oh, God. Okay. One second. Uh, doing this. All right, here it is. It's a big red button. Exactly. Basically, what this button does is that whoever presses it, it will take us back into the time period of whatever they say. So, giving us the total immersion of what it's like. Every single time you see a big red button, you know what to do. Don't press it. Don't press it. Just just press it. Trust me. All right. You're going to press it. Okay. Listen, listen. Gentlemen, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. Yes. All right, here we go. Where are we? Well, we're in 2005, which does make sense, actually, if we're going to talk about 2007. (laughs) But why? Why are we in 2005? Hear me out. It is kind of important because in order to understand 2007, you need to understand 2005. Actually, if you really be even more specific, you want to be talking about 2004, but we'll get to that later. So it's 2005, and Fernando Alonso has just won his first world championship. And at that time, he was the youngest world champion in Formula One history. And it was something that no one ever expected, and it was an absolute shock considering how the season went on. 
Renault were the second best car, but McLaren was the number one car with the magnificent MP420 uh, designed by Adrian Newey. So in order to understand this, you need to understand that at this point, Adrian Newey was about to exit the McLaren team. And then Fernando Alonso decided to sign up in 2005, all right, to join McLaren. So remember, this is he has to do a full season with Renault before he gets to the McLaren team in the 2007 championship. I mean, it, it was it, it blew everyone's mind that one Alonso was committed to a team one year in advance, or one full season in advance. Um, oh, so it was before the season even started. Even before the season even started. But it sets up the pieces because it also sets up to why McLaren ended up being McLaren throughout the rest of the year. In a good way and in a bad way, but it also um, sets up like the first part of the jigsaw piece because in 2006, this epic championship between Fernando and Michael Schumacher in his final year with the Scuderia, um, what happens is Michael announces his retirement in 2006, and now that seats need to be filled out. And during that whole season, there was a debate between whether Kimi was going to stay at McLaren or if Montoya was going to stay at McLaren. And at the time, it was it was pretty evident at the early part of that season that, oh, Montoya was going to move to Red Bull and it's going to be Fernando and uh, Kimi teaming up for the 2007 season. That did not happen. <laughs> what actually happened is Montoya, the USGP, decided to bounce from Formula One. He was like, I'm done. I'm going to do NASCAR. And then it was filled with Pedro de la Rosa as the reserve test driver for the remainder of the season and Kimmy. And it was like, oh, hang on. Well, then who's actually going to get the drive? It seems like it's going to be Kimmy, right? Well, no, because Schumacher had already retired. And in September 10th of 2006, yes, I remember that date because I cried my eyes out. Big Schumacher fan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happened is that Ferrari signed Kimmy. So who is going to take that number two spot now in McLaren all of a sudden? Well, guess who does take that spot? I'll give you a hint. He's currently in F1, and he absolutely destroyed the competition at the GP2 championship. And more specifically, this decision was not even made until after the F1 championship was actually determined. And that driver who would take that second place drive was Lewis Hamilton. And it was a shocker because it was like McLaren, this this esteemed championship winning culture is taking a gamble a rookie who had never driven a formula one car until 2006 at the very end of 2006 which is very different from driving what now is formula two those days gp2 was only its second year you know mclaren were taking a huge risk but all the pieces were set renault were still not really decided who was going to fill out the the slot of alonso and it would go on to be um be finished driver heike kovalainen or heike kovalainen i think Either or is fine, how you pronounce it. Basically, those the, the all the seats and the major jigsaw pieces were filled, and it was a completely sandbox championship from here on outwards, which was a first because the, the thing you both need to sort of think about, and the listeners will have to understand this too, Formula One was not very popular. Schumacher was dominating the championship. He won everything. The politics of Ferrari was kind of getting in the way of the, the racing, you know, Fernando Alonso was a was a breath of fresh air, but it, there there wasn't really an alpha character, right? You know, there wasn't like okay, this is the figure face of F1. Although Alonso was brilliant and great, there were a lot of question marks about him as a as a driver because in two seasons in a row he always won, 
with the second best car on the grid and and it, was, it wasn't always in the most dominant of fashion so there was still some like asterisks Kimmy, who was very fast and brilliant, didn't win that much either going into that season. And then you got Lewis, who was a complete enigma in all of this. And then Giancarlo Fisichella, who was eh, a bit mid, let's be honest here. And Heike Kovalainen, there was a lot of actually excitement about him, maybe even more than Lewis Hamilton, because he had won the race of champions, which was a big thing amongst f1 drivers at the time and you know it's renault this is a constructors team that had won the championship with the brilliant r25 and r26 cars what's going to go on i mean 2006 had not even ended and there was like okay finally for the first time ever f1 is going to have a question mark about who's going to be world champion and we're all for it (laughs) you know because finally there's something changing and it came in at the time when V10s had now moved to V8s, to be honest, Ferrari were starting to move away from the, the Schumacher era. Jean Tot was still the team principal. Ross Braun, I think, had left by them, but Rory Byrne in Ferrari was still there. It's like it was it was so pure and perfect going into 2007. There was genuine excitement in, in, in the Formula One world and in the sporting world. And living in the UK, because I used to live in England, no one cared about F1. You know, and that's this is a country that invented the darn sport. People were not very interested. Lewis Hamilton coming into McLaren made people get a little bit more curious as to, you know, is this guy, has he really got what it takes? And well, they were about to find out in Australia. Yeah, that was in uh, the first round with uh, with when his brand new teammate, Fernando Alonso, in the Melbourne Grand yes. Prix. Right. And that was when they, they yes. came in. Uh, Fernando got second. Um, Lewis got third, and I think Kimmy Kimmy actually won that race, didn't he? Yeah, so 2007 started off really in favor of McLaren, because McLaren actually, they were pretty evenly matched. There wasn't really a big difference between the two cars, and, you know, there was a lot of hope for the, for the MP422 of the McLaren, and for the first time probably ever in Fernando Alonso's career, Fernando was looking pretty good he was looking like he was going to be the number one driver in the number one car and it was just a matter of time when he would get his first win and meanwhile ferrari who one would argue had the best car in 2006 ended up being kind of second best but it didn't matter because in melbourne at least the kimmy went on to win the race and pretty handsomely and and pretty comfortably and lewis hamilton started in fourth and that was already very impressive you know, first qualifying session already in fourth. But what was amazing about the start of that Grand Prix, which is kind of a teaser of many things to come, was Fernando Alonso, as you know, is is a very hard racing driver to beat. You you have to you have to do things like very much on his rule set. But but Lewis, turn one, a corner that's quite tricky to pass people, immediately passes Fernando Alonso to go up into the top three. It was an incredible start. Remember, this was his first race, Lewis Hamilton's first race in a Formula One car. The gap is like, it's like going from high school football to the NFL. Immediately. Within like, immediately. I mean, this is, this is something you not only finished on the podium, you beat your teammate at one point on the first lap, on the first corner. And it was, it, it was just insane. It was just, it was, it was completely an insane moment. And for the first time, it felt like there could be a three-way fight, maybe even a four-way fight for the Formula One World Championship. 
And and that was that was incredible. And that was such a momentous occasion. And then the season would sort of pile on in terms of drama and politics and on race action. The, the big headline for that year, after that race, people are like convinced that, OK, Lewis could probably win a Grand Prix and probably he could do that within the first five races. And it's important to note that because the last driver who won his first Grand Prix within five races was Jacques Villeneuve, the son to Gilles Villeneuve, one of the greatest racing drivers to have ever graced the sport, taken way too soon. Um, and Jacques Villeneuve was in a, equally a very good car, another Adrian Newey designed car, because the 2007 car, although it was designed by Adrian Newey, Adrian Newey had left the team to go to Red Bull, and well, we know what's happened because we're still experiencing that BS. But, <laughs> but basically, the 2007 season, what was impressive about that whole first few races of the season was people were really convinced that Lewis Hamilton was going to win pretty much any one of the first few Grand Prix, which, spoiler alert, he doesn't actually end up winning. It takes him until really? his sixth Grand Prix. Yeah, so this is surprising. So during those, those first few Grand Prix, Lewis finishes on the podium in every single one of them. Again, mind-blowing like that a driver could be able to do that. Equally incredible is just how consistent throughout the whole year he has been as well. So in the second race of the season, there is a pattern starting to, to, to form where that, although Ferrari looked good in the first half of the year, really the Clarence seemed to have the faster package. But it doesn't matter. Second race, um, Fernando Alonso wins the Grand Prix. In the third race, Felipe Massa wins the Grand Prix. And Felipe actually goes on to win another Grand Prix at the Spanish Grand Prix. And then in Monaco, McLaren are so good at Monaco that they lapped every single car except for fourth place. And it was, and it was Lewis Hamilton and... Fernando Alonso fighting for the win throughout the whole Grand Prix. And the biggest thing that came out of it, I remember this, the, the, the headlines were like, oh, Lewis Hamilton makes a mistake because he hit the Armco barrier <laughs> at one point during the Grand Prix. And, and apparently that was like, oh, he, he's making too many mistakes now all of a sudden. There was like a big thing where the press were like freaking out about this. So Monaco is the fifth Grand Prix of the year, and Fernando wins that one. And although Lewis has been on the podium in every single one of these Grand Prix, he doesn't get the Jacques Villeneuve record. But that changes at the sixth Grand Prix of the season, at the Canadian Grand Prix. If I remember correctly, this this was not only going to be a huge, huge thing for McLaren, but it's also a really bad, bad accident for, what, Robert Kubica? Yeah. So Kubica was the hot talent coming out of the 2006 season. He had replaced Jacques Villeneuve. He had scored podiums. He scored a podium at the Italian Grand Prix in 2006, which is also the famous Grand Prix where Michael had announced his retirement. And he was looking like a really, like he was going to be a force. Martin Brundle, I think still to this day, says he's the scariest driver he has ever seen in Formula One. He was he was unbelievably intimidatingly fast. But at that Grand Prix, actually starts, you know, doesn't have a very good race and he actually gets passed by the slowest car on the track which is the super aguri which is embarrassingly bad and i'll get to fernando in a few because fernando has a very stupid season i guess is the best way i can explain it but kubica has a crash because he's trying to pass yarno truly which doesn't surprise me because the truly was very good at creating trains and in fact the the meme in in those few seasons was that truly always created like a, a drs train of his equivalent and then he has this huge crash but because of this crash the next race a certain other world champion makes his debut race and that's sebastian vettel where he replaces kibitza for the u.s grand prix but the grand prix does get won eventually by lewis hamilton and 
he becomes the first African-American Formula One driver to win a Grand Prix. And uh, he, it was it was incredible. It was an incredible sight. For the first time in a long time, it felt like finally, you know, there was going to be a very good British Formula One driver in F1. They had a kind of a button, but Lewis was, was so special. He had won that. And then he'd win the, the, the second race fighting you know, Fernando Alonso the whole season. So he wins two Grand Prix in a row. And then at the French Grand Prix, he doesn't have as good of a of a race. But at the British Grand Prix, he scores his first pole position at in the UK. And he would end up losing that race. Kimi would win that Grand Prix. But it was an absolutely insane start. The first few Grand Prix, he's on the podium for pretty much all of them. It was just mesmerizing. And that race was just a, truly the cataclysm of all of Lewis Hamilton's career, which is something you just couldn't believe happened. And he did it with such glamour and grace. To this day, we, we either appreciate or we don't, depending on which band camp you're in. But in those days, Lewis was such a fresh of breath air. I mean, he was extremely different. He was the most human F1 driver on that grid coming from the background yeah. that he came from. He was not a rich white kid who bought his way into F1. He was someone who literally was sleeping on his dad's couch for most of his life and then got the, the drive of a lifetime and <laughs> he was killing it. Yeah. He was, he was also trying things that most rookies hadn't tried in their first season of F1. If I remember correctly, he actually was considered one of the most aggressive drivers at one point in I, I want to say by the time he had just reached the Monaco and the Spanish Grand Prix that was just before he reached his first F1 victory in the Canadian Grand Prix a lot of people were talking about that in you know various things that I had read I want to know what your opinion is on that and like how how you think he was coming up to his first win well, I think going up to his first win, we were just amazed. I think a lot of people were amazed by his consistency. I mean, Lewis Hamilton has always been a consistent driver, even to this day. It is it's rare that he he doesn't deliver, um, and he doesn't deliver high consistent results. In fact, he's probably better than Alonso, which explains a lot. To be honest, in my opinion, I thought Lewis was the better driver throughout most of that season, and he was just very unlucky towards the end. But I will say that I never found Lewis ever too aggressive. I actually think he wasn't aggressive enough because there's some races that I can think of where I was like, you know, again, Monaco, it might have been actually worth it if he took a little bit more risk. A bigger uh, gamble. But, right. And he did take a bigger gamble in fairness in Thursday when he was trying to find the limits of uh, of his McLaren and then he crashed into Santa Vaught, which I still remember for some reason in my head that crash. Lewis does end up having a huge crash, though at the European Grand Prix, the 10th round of the season. And this is actually where, up to this point, it is obvious it's McLaren versus Ferrari. Renault are out of the picture. They are having a horrific season. It's not really working. It feels like it's it's a team that has sort of regressed to, uh, to sort of back to that midfield level. Going into the 10th round of the season, I think Lewis is still leading the championship. Ferrari are close, but they're, they're kind of been in an enigma at this point, you know? We're not really sure what what has happened, but we just we know that Kimmy is always going to kind of be there. He'll take the wins when he has, and every time he has won, he's either had to win when Ferrari the most dominant, or if McLaren makes certain mistakes. The previous Grand Prix before Kimmy has a really good British Grand Prix and wins in front of Lewis's home crowd, but Lewis finishes on the podium and all that jazz. So going to the tenth Grand Prix, Lewis has a huge crash at the relatively newly named Schumacher S's 
which is the corner that happened kind of after the the hairpin corner yes. of um, the Nurburgring, the, the newer layout Nurburgring at the time. And he ends up going to the hospital. He's fine. He comes into the Grand Prix. The Grand Prix is famous because the race starts off kind of dry, but there's a little bit of that rain that could be coming in. And then one driver from the Spiker F1 team Marcus Winklehawk, which is the nickname I give my brother because my brother is also called Mark. He ends, he goes to the pit lane, puts on wet tires. And by the time it's like the second lap, he's leading the Grand Prix. There's so much rain on the racetrack that Marcus Winklehawk uh, does not only, you know, is leading the Grand Prix, but there are seven cars that crash in turn one, including Lewis Hamilton, who actually gets out of it. It's hilarious. You can look at it online. Seven cars are wiped out at turn one. So many drivers. Jensen Button uh, was one of them. I think Ventonio Luizzi was another one uh, that I can think of. It was hilarious. Uh, one of the funniest um, starts to a, to, to a Grand Prix ever. Drivers come back in and it's kind of like a, a damp race. Alonso and Felipe have this collision between the drivers and uh, between uh, Fernando Alonso and Felipe Massa. Fernando does this beautiful overtake on Felipe Massa and one of the S's goes on to win a Grand Prix. That race is also famous because it, you see Fernando and Felipe have a bit of an argument in the driver cooldown room publicly in front of the cameras, and it, it doesn't really impress Fernando, how Felipe behaves, but he's also bemused Fernando. And Felipe is obviously annoyed. He could have won that Grand Prix. Doesn't go his way. Felipe is kind of like fourth in the championship at this point. He's won two Grand Prix, but Kimi's won three. Kimi's been more consistent. Fernando's won three at this point. Lewis has won only two, but he's finished so many times on the podium that Lewis is still leading the championship. Now, it's important to understand that note because this is where the heart of everything that happens in the back half of the 2007 season. So in those days, in the days that happened, the Hungarian Grand Prix was sort of the final race before the summer break, a three, four week break. We still have those to this day. But there were rumors going on that Fernando was not very happy with Lewis Hamilton. And he believed that McLaren were favoriting Lewis. Now, the reason Fernando thinks this is, one, McLaren have always historically under Ron Dennis, the chairman of McLaren at the time. He historically was not had done this to many of his drivers. He did this with Alan Prost. He did this with Ayrton Senna. He did this with many, many times. With Fernando, uh, Fernando's kind of this type of person who will start a fire and put more oil in the fire for whatever reason he can. So Fernando is really annoyed because he gets the impression that Lewis is trying to win this championship over him by getting McLaren on his side. Now, Fernando, at the beginning of the time it was perceived, a lot of the press believed more that this is complete BS and anything that Fernando is saying is just him being a bad loser, that Lewis is doing a good job. But Marcus Priestley did reveal in a recent book that it turns out Lewis equally played the politics of this uh, brilliantly. Like he he was completely aware of what was going on and used it more or less to his advantage. And so what actually ends up happening is that this miscommunication between the two drivers, Fernando at the Hungarian Grand Prix does this, the most, it's still to this day, up there with Max brake checking Lewis at Saudi Arabia. Fernando does this really bitchy thing. Two minutes to go before the end of the qualifying session in Q3, where Fernando was likely to get pole position, 
Fernando parks his car on the on the pit box stop. In those days, the drivers wouldn't go back into the, the garages. They would have a quick tire change and the drivers would just go out and do another lap while, you know, they're full of adrenaline, low fuel runs, all that kind of jazz. And Fernando, for about a full 15, almost 20 seconds, hangs on back and just casually stays there in the grid box and then leaves. And what this does, it makes it prevents Lewis from doing a final qualifying lap. So Fernando deliberately blocks his own teammate for no reason whatsoever, only to sort of allow Lewis to kind of get away with a lot of things. So um, the FIA called bluff and they penalize Fernando Alonso. Fernando has to start 10 places back because that's cheating. I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. how you think it. Like he, he deliberately messed another driver, especially his teammate's lap. And this really annoys Ron Dennis. Ron Dennis throws his headphones basically at the, the pit wall monitoring telemetry stuff, talks to Fernando's physio essentially. He literally scolds him. You can see it on YouTube. It's, it's it's completely shocking that Fernando has done this. Fernando would end up finishing seventh in that Grand Prix. Lewis would go on to win the Grand Prix. And this is this is why I talk about Fernando has a stupid season. Okay, if Fernando was smart, he should have not made those type of mistakes. He made a few of those type of little errors, but this was the worst offense of them all. And it was very obvious that he did not like driving for McLaren, and it was very obvious that McLaren did not like him being in the team at the time. What ends up unfortunately being the case is that there are rumors now spiraling that Fernando and McLaren are going to be terminating their contract. But that was all going to hold off because after the summer break, and I think this is the one that you're all very interested to hear about, there are rumors speculating that McLaren potentially could have found the blueprints of the F2007, the Ferrari F1 car, and that there was information being shared between the two teams. Before I talk about that, I'm sure you have a lot of questions at this point. Yeah, this is... Ooh, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm watching it. So you're telling me this, and I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the whole move with Alonzo uh, blocking Hamilton, and I, I'm just like, why isn't he moving? I don't get it. Why... <laughs> He was cheating. He was he was better because Fernando, he and you see it at this day. If he doesn't like you, he is so bitter. And this is what when we talked about this out of the, the podcast, we did talk about like what is Fernando Alonso the driver? Well, the difference between Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso is that Lewis, he's kind of like he's blank. Like he he's more of a blank guy. Like he does his sort of politics on the track, if that makes sense from a from a driver standpoint. Fernando, on the other hand, is the type of guy who would just speak his mind. I mean, he insulted Honda at the Japanese Grand Prix on the team radio. He's he's done some silly things with Ferrari. He did that recently with Alpine. He took a dig at Red Bull race at the car launch for, for Aston Martin. The, the competition that Max, if, if Aston Martin get their act together, if they build a really competitive car, Max is not going to be dealing with a Lewis Hamilton. He's going to be dealing with Alonso. Alonso, who is going to find ways to absolutely mess with you if he can, because that's who he is. Um, he is, he's very petty, especially at that time, you know, champion of the world. You've been told a hundred times you're the best, you're the best, you're awesome. Fernando has painted the villain, all right? If Max is the villain right now, Fernando was the villain right then, you know, like the best driver in the world, undoubtedly no longer Schumacher's there. He's kind of the face, but Lewis is there to take the crown. It's the great Hollywood story. It is what it is. You know, during this time of like when they were racing together, like were there ever any on-track altercations or even off-track altercations that kind of showed that there was any tension between the two? No, none. They they were very clean with each other. I mean, like, that's the thing that I think, which is why I was always annoyed with 
the comments from from Red Bull during the 21 season because Red Bull were coming up with all kinds of stupid reasons to think that Lewis is a very overly aggressive driver. Lewis is, is actually a very clean racing driver. Yes, he makes mistakes. He makes a lot of mistakes, but nothing in the same level that even Alonso would ever go to. Lewis is not that like vindictive, if that makes sense. Yes, he makes mistakes. He wears his heart on his sleeve a lot, and he has admitted that many, many times throughout his career. And he still is like that to this day. We saw it, you know, at the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, for instance. He is a very human racing driver. But Fernando, you know, would really be the one who would trigger some of that. And even to win the European Grand Prix, Fernando had to be in a collision with Felipe to make that move kind of happen. It was a brilliant move, but, you know, from the two drivers... They were both really respectful of each other. They they know how to race each other very fairly. And I, I never, I just think, again, with how close that championship was, they both have a very, very good F1 car. It only made sense that Fernando would feel that some things were not going his way. We obviously got to talk now, though. Got to talk about what the 2007 season is Ooh, actually yes. known for. Spygate. Now, what people forget about Formula One, especially in those days, was the FIA was a very polarizing organization. Ferrari had enormous leverage that only until 2021 or 20 that they remove a lot of Ferrari's power. Ferrari had a lot of influence in the championship. I mention this because there's two ways you can see Spygate. You could see Spygate in the way that Ferrari see it, which is that McLaren are wrong, or you could see it subjectively, which is like, well, hang on, why does McLaren get away with it, and why doesn't Ferrari get away with it? I'm going to explain it because it's kind of complicated. So Formula One, as you know, as great as your drivers as they are, as we're seeing this season especially, you're only as good as your machinery, and McLaren built a monster. The McLaren was the better. That whole season, it was a work of art. The the, the Adrian Newey-designed McLaren was was truly a, a very special machine. So in 2007, the Ferrari maybe less so. Now, there are two individuals who are an important part of this sort of narrative, Mike Coughlin and Nigel Stepney. Mike Coughlin works for McLaren, and Nigel Stepney works for Ferrari. Now, the two know each other, and allegedly, what happens in around somewhere early in the season, uh, and this is kind of going throughout, but it's kind of in the background, the story until the summer break, where it's like, okay, really Ferrari are, are, now they have a case in front of the FIA and the tribunal in Paris and all that jazz. Um, Nigel Stepney allegedly is sharing information about the F2007, like literally sending over 100, 700 pages of worth of documents to Mike Coughlin to use on his side to make McLaren really, really strong. What Ferrari do is they, and they're sharing information back and forth. So it's not just, you know, Nigel Stepney doing it. Mike Coughlin is kind of doing it, I guess, at the same time. There's a lot of people involved in it. Technically, Renault are involved in it because they believe that there's some people who in Renault who even knew about some of the information provided from Ferrari and from the other teams. But that's not the point. It's a complete mess. So uh, the FIA do an investigation and they find out that McLaren did use those pages to make their car even stronger. And to this day, it is considered one of the worst cheating scandals in sporting history. I mean, it would be top the season afterwards, but okay. So, that's so real story. quick, uh, if I remember correctly, that how this spygate was was supposedly found, mm -hmm. it was basically like you were saying, like they were almost nearly like seven, seven or eight hundred pages of of team confidential documents that were that were basically yes. practically being photocopied at a Staples, almost, almost, yeah, near Woking. 
Like, as a photocopying shop in, in Woking, right next to the McLaren factory, how stupid must you be to... But so, so my question is this, is like, how did they get from the fact that there was somebody at a, you know, photocopying these technical confidential documents that should technically should be locked under lock and key, and instead they're being photocopied at a, at a place. How did that all get found out? It came, it got found out because of the fact that one Mike Coughlin couldn't was clearly not a good enough spy or actor to kind of find ways to get around this, but also two that he had a confidant in the form of Nigel Stepney who was able to share it in a way that was so under the table that Ferrari couldn't even find out. And when they did find out, obviously now we're here. But I want to get actually straight to who's involved in this as well, because guess who's also involved in all of this? Fernando Alonso, because there are emails that date connect the communication between Mike Coughlin and Fernando Alonso. And when the tribunal happens, McLaren, they don't necessarily tell Fernando you shouldn't go, but they also urge Fernando to just try and be as forward for the team as possible. But Fernando's having is pretty pissed off at this point of the year. He's fed up with McLaren. So so what does he do? Well, he tells them the whole truth, tells them everything about McLaren. And what happens is that the FIA, Max Mosley, and the rest of the gang give McLaren a 100 million pound or euro fine, the largest in sporting history. They disqualify McLaren from the Constructors' Championship. So at this point, the team, it's its basically housing for the Drivers' Championship. So Lewis and Fernando are told, go nuts, go have some fighting with each other you know, piss off. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. McLaren cannot do anything about it. There's no team orders. They don't, they, they have no obligation. If their cars start crashing with each other in the, in the season, it doesn't benefit McLaren because McLaren, no matter what, will not get their prize money. They'll be in the back of the grid in terms of the grid boxes and everything. GG, nice knowing you. It was amazing. It is still, I think to this day, one of the biggest sporting penalties of all time. It's such a cheat scandal. No one could believe that this could happen in F1, and especially no one could believe that it would happen to McLaren. The only thing, if I'm being very honest about this, is although Ferrari were right and Ferrari were the team that rightly so, got away with it. I don't understand why the FI didn't do a thorough, thorough, thorough investigation enough on Ferrari, because I do think Ferrari probably shared that information yeah. internally as well. It just shows their leverage. It also proves the argument that a lot of people had at the time that, oh, Ferrari, get away with absolutely everything. In this case, they they absolutely were at the right, but I, I still think it, it, it was a bit controversial. And, and people, even in the 08 season, the season afterwards, they still debated whether McLaren did carry that information into the 08 car. Like the same argument people are having right now about Red Bull is when Red Bull was caught for cheating, for overspending, did that performance affect the next year's car? The answer is usually yes. And those days there was a lot less rules to sort of allowed for that type of behavior to actually happen. So it's controversial is what I'm trying to say. Right. Long story short, it's, it was definitely, you know, controversial in, in the fact that it that these implications in all of the the technical documents and things that were said uh you know between the drivers about the the team and you know between ferrari and mclaren to this day i i do agree that there are still some implications being felt from the latter consequences of this considering the fact that there was a uh, hundred million dollars that they were basically fined and they were also thrown out if I remember correctly, you told me that this this ending of a season was going to be one of the closest 
between not just two drivers, but almost four. Yeah. So um, just to wrap that story up, because you talk about consequences, haven't you noticed ever since that 2007 championship, if if McLaren were still kind of were in the Constructors' Championship, they probably would have won the 2007 Constructors' season. But even then, they have not won a single Constructors since then. And and what is crazy is that that 100 million, it did affect them 100% because that team never became like the number one team after that ever again. It still isn't to this day. And I, I still argue that 100 million probably would have saved McLaren during COVID when they had all the issues that they had in, in 2020 and laying off, selling off their cars and all that kind of stuff. So because we've seen this historically because Williams were the same thing when Senna died and the Italian government sued Williams because in, in Italy, when you have a crash and you crash in another one's vehicle and you die, the car company is the one to blame. And in this case, it was Williams. And after they were caught for what they were caught, not deliberately, um, Williams never won another championship ever again. So financially, you know, losing a hundred million, it's a big blow for a team like McLaren. Oh, absolutely. I, I a hundred percent believe that. Yeah, it's, it's insane. So going back to the 2007 season, while this is going on, um, there's a lot of stuff that start happening because of this. There's a lot of inconsistencies in behavior with, or driver behavior with, uh, with Lewis, etc., and Fernando, they make a lot more mistakes. I think Lewis ends up finishing fourth at the Turkish Grand Prix, which was a bit strange. Sebastian Vettel is now a full-time driver driving for Toro Rosso. Um, Lewis doesn't actually win that many races um, after Hungary. He only wins one race in Japan. Felipe wins the Turkish Grand Prix. That'd be his last win of the season. The Italian Grand Prix gets won by Fernando Alonso. Lewis has an incredible Italian Grand Prix where he passes Kimi at the at T1 and up until the Japanese Grand Prix which in Japan Fernando makes a mistake in the torrential rain crashes into a wall um it's game over for him essentially Lewis going into the Chinese Grand Prix is the de facto championship leader he can actually win the Formula 1 World Championship at the Chinese Grand Prix that is how far ahead he is of the points at that part of the season so what actually happens is that Lewis Hamilton is leading most of the Chinese Grand Prix, gets pole position, you know, he, he's dominating it. The tires are, the inters that he was driving at the time, or maybe it wasn't even inters, it was just one of the tires had run completely flat, essentially, of, of tread. And he locks up and goes straight into the pit lane bunker. So he technically crashes into the pit lane, is out of the race, and he loses 10 points, which means the championship goes on into the final race of the season, which bunches everyone up all of a sudden. Now, all of a sudden, even though... Lewis is ahead and he's dominating and all that kind of stuff. People are still convinced he can win the Brazilian Grand Prix, but that move would end up being like that mistake with the tires, him staying out too long. That was the move that kind of, I think was the kryptonite for the rest of the rest of the season, which was only the Brazilian Grand Prix and the Brazilian Grand Prix. It's Kimi, Lewis and Fernando fighting for the title. Kimi is third place. Fernando is second place in the championship. Kimi has an outside chance. In order for Kimi to become world champion, he has to hope that Fernando is third and Lewis Hamilton is nowhere near the top four or five. Lewis is actually, he starts off kind of well during that weekend. He's kind of within the top four and he just needs to finish in fourth, essentially, or fifth. But he then has a gearbox problem and is brought all the way in the back. So he's 18th. So now he has to fight from 18th all the way to fourth or fifth in order to win the championship. He doesn't. He finishes seventh. Fernando crucially finishes third, and Kimi would end up winning the championship. So the guy who started third by one freaking point 
And what's even more insane, Lewis and Fernando end up with the exact same points. Lewis is ahead because he had more podiums and had been more consistent over the year. Um, but Lewis is on the same points as his teammate. So that's why no one ever knew who was better between the two, in my opinion. Again, if Lewis hadn't had that Chinese Grand Prix failure, we'd talk, be talking about Lewis Hamilton being an eight-time world champion right about now. But that's not the case that's anymore. That's not the case. <laughs> Kimi right. ends up being Finland's first since Mika Hakkinen in 1999. Ferrari win the Constructors and the Drivers' Championship, so they get a clean sweep of everything. It was incredible. It was just an incredible end to what was an absolutely insane Formula One season. Oh my god. There was just there was just so much that we went through in that yeah. amount of time. It's an insane year. That is insane. Yeah. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. It looks like the big red button is uh, just about oh, over. No. Hold on. Let's see if we can... Okay, I was managed able to get five more minutes out of it. So, I think we got five more minutes and then we're definitely going to come back to... 2023 where um red bull is now taking over the the constructors championship with an absolute beast of which a car is sad, right which now. is very sad because when you see this it makes you realize just how close the the, the 2007 season was I, you know i'm looking around here right now and i'm looking and it's so it's so beautiful like i wish this era of formula one could have stayed around quite a bit well, well you say that you say that but i will also be honest although i glorify the v8s and those cars look amazing just look at the, the mp422 is a gorgeous car and the M, the f2007 is beautiful all those cars look gorgeous but the racing was boring <laughs> like the the racing right. itself there wasn't a lot of moment-to-moment -moment racing compared to what we have now there's a lot of things i don't like about these new 2223 cars but the one thing i do like is that they're very raceable these cars were parachutes behind each other. They were aerodynamic machines. They were aimed to slow the cars down. They were not really aimed to to make pure, more clean racing. Um, it was very strategy-filled. It was refueling, I believe, at that time. And the, even the cars had traction control. In 2007 was the last year that F1 cars had traction control. They banned it the next season because they wanted to make more racing. And this is when F1 starts to get fed up with these rules. They come up with new rules. And then in 2009, they introduced KERS, which is the Kinetic Energy Recovery System. The cars look completely different. Braun ends up winning the 2009 championship. Honestly, because of 07 and because of 08, it becomes the ripple effect. And that's what, what's important about 2007, all right? Because like I said, up to this point, F1 is this sort of, ah, uh, it's this old man, 40, 50-year-old sort of sport. You know, some people like it, some people don't. Some kids really get a vibe for it. But F1 starts to shift away from that. They decide to make the racing better. They do whatever it can to make the racing better and make the car still spectacular, but still make the Grand Prix racing better. And it comes as a result of Lewis Hamilton. I cannot emphasize, when Lewis Hamilton leaves F1, it is really not going to be the same sport. Because Lewis, when he came into F1, it went from being the 40, 50-year-old man sort of crap to a lot of normal people watching it because after 07 celebrities start coming to f1 beyonce tom cruise harrison ford recently you know they go to singapore and singapore has a, a concert with black eyed peas opening up the whole grand prix you know um lewis himself starts dating nicole scherzinger who's one of the lead singers for the pussycat dolls and is a very famous um actress and singer now um you know so many things have happened thanks to lewis being an f1 because it finally made the sport a little bit more human a little bit more 
you know, of the sport that we all love today. It's definitely a lot different now than it is back then. I mean, I always I always hear a bunch of people talking about it. It looks like our time machine is up. So let's go ahead and get ready and press the big red button to come back. Holy crap, what a freaking trip. That was absolutely amazing. I, I absolutely enjoyed that. Willem, I just want to say thank you so much for not only your uh, knowledge and everything that you shared for us, but also our listeners too. I, I learned a lot more than I've learned rather than like looking up articles or looking up, you know, vi- listening to videos. I feel like I've I've had a lot more of an intimate experience listening to like almost a firsthand account. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you again. My pleasure. My pleasure. You know, if you're willing to take us again on the, the time machine run again in the future, let us know and we'll definitely have the big red button ready for you. No problem. I'd love to. So many great stories to tell about Formula One. I think that's what's great about F1. Its past is is very, very interesting and um, its present is also kind of interesting but nowhere near as the past, you know, always a pleasure to be back. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and close with this. You want to hear us talk about something? Let us know, reach out to us on our social media at the apex F1 podcast or at the apex F1 official on Instagram, uh, reach out to us on our discord. Um, if you have the link to it and don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon where you can get intimate access with us and we can maybe answer some of your more burning questions and join a community. We've got a a growing community so far building up on there. So be sure to reach out to us and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode until next time. I'll see you later.